Well, from confessing together those wonderful words, those truths of the Apostles' Creed and song, sorry to begin on a downer this evening and bring us right back down to earth, but I'm sure it's on at least some of our minds tonight that it's the end of the summer holidays. And uh, this week, most of our children and young people will be heading back to school. Perhaps some teachers here looking forward to what lies ahead. I wonder how you found this summer spiritually. Maybe just take a moment to reflect and think back over the last few weeks. Has it been a time of of growth and encouragement for you? Was there perhaps a, a camp or a conference that you went on or a book that you read or some opportunity that you were given to challenge your faith and test your faith that you can look back at with thankfulness? Or perhaps this summer's been a time of struggle for you. Maybe you found it hard to keep going as a Christian over the last few weeks. There might be someone here this evening who's conscious of having messed up in some way, perhaps feeling far from God tonight. For some of us then, perhaps it's business as usual as the new academic year begins. For others though, we may well be wondering how we're going to keep going in the Christian life this coming academic year. And as always, the Bible has a word for all of us this evening, a word that can help us to keep going. So please do turn with me. We're at the last chapter of Colossians, Colossians chapter 4. The titles given to these sections in our church Bibles, further instructions and final greetings, I have to say don't sound very inspiring, do they? It doesn't sound like a very exciting sermon. But as we read, we are listening here. We're going to listen to the inspired words of our loving creator and redeemer. And as we come to him with open and expectant hearts, we can expect to hear him speak to us. So let me read the passage. I'm going to read from verse 2 to the end of the chapter, and then I'll pray. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who's one of you, they will tell you of everything that's taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who's called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they've been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who's one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. 
and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Our loving God and Heavenly Father, we hear these parting words of the Apostle Paul, grace be with you. And we praise you that your grace, grace upon grace, is given to us in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, freely and fully and savingly as we believe in his name. We praise you that the mystery of Christ has been made manifest and proclaimed around the world, even to us here this evening. And here we sit or stand this evening, 150-odd perhaps servants of Christ Jesus, who sincerely desire the milk of your word, that our hearts may be encouraged, that we might stand mature and fully assured in all your will, that we might be able to continue and to press on in the Christian life until the last day. So teach us, we pray. We ask in the Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, keeping going or continuing in Christ has been one of the great themes of this letter. And if you've been with us over the summer in these evening services for the rest of the series, you'll know that it's one of the great pastoral concerns of the Apostle Paul, the imprisoned apostle who wrote this letter. So in chapter 1, we saw Paul's desire that the Christians in Colossae would endure, that they would keep going in the faith. And it's also in that first chapter, verse 28, that we have the famous statement of Paul's mission. It's like his vision statement for his work, namely to present everyone mature in Christ. Maturity in Christ. That's what Paul wanted for the Christians in Colossae. That's what God wants for you. God wants you to grow up Not in the sense that you should ever lose the wonder and the delight and the trust that every true child of God has towards his heavenly father. But in the sense that you should mature in such a way that you live all your life in the light of all the fullness that God has for you in Christ, in whom is all the fullness of God. Because that's true joy. That's true fulfillment. That is true fullness. And do we not want that? Well, in chapter 2, Paul deals with an apparent confusion. Some people seem to have thought that you get there, this maturity and fullness in Christ, by means of something special, some special experience or special knowledge or special rules. You know, the gospel of Jesus Christ might be good for starters, whets your appetite, gets your spiritual taste buds going. But if you want something for main course, you need something more substantial and filling. No, says Paul. Everything is found in Christ. All fullness is in him. If I can say it with reverence, Jesus Christ is starter, main course, and pudding as well. A great spiritual banquet for us. And so then in chapter 3, last week if you were here, keeping going to maturity in Christ takes the concrete form of living out the lordship of Christ in all our relationships with one another, seeking things above, loving one another, serving one another, speaking the word of Christ to one another as we sing and talk to one another in encouragement in everything we do. Why? Well, 
because that kind of life reflects the kind of people we now are in him. Paul says we've become new or holy, set apart people in Christ. So we need to live the new and holy and set apart life. And that takes us to tonight's passage in chapter 4. Now, in some ways, there's nothing new in this last chapter. Like any good preacher, Paul doesn't bring a whole lot of new ideas into his conclusion to confuse us. Instead, the key themes of the letter return. The power of the gospel, which is no less than the mystery of Christ revealed. The call to live thankful and holy lives as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ in the world. And then the need to press on to maturity in Christ, walking together in all the fullness we've received in him. And all of this is grounded, all of this is made possible by the grace of God in Christ, given to sinners like us. That's how Paul began the letter, chapter 1, verse 2, grace to you, is how he ends the letter in the very last verse, grace be with you. And that's right, isn't it? The Christian life begins with, continues by, ends in the grace of God given to sinners in Jesus. He is our only hope. And what a wonderful hope he is. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Well, to help us get a handle on these verses in this last chapter, I've got two main headings. You'll see this on the back of the service sheets or service books we've got tonight. It's the longest one I've ever seen. Uh, Relating to outsiders, relating to insiders, and hopefully that'll help you to find your way as we go. First then, relating to outsiders, and I've got a subtitle there, Prayerful Gospel Proclamation. Now, Paul uses the language of outsiders here in verse 5, like he does a couple of other places in the New Testament. And I probably should say something about that because the insider-outsider language maybe doesn't sound very friendly to our ears. Christian churches are open to everyone, regardless. It doesn't matter who you are. You're very welcome here tonight. But churches, quite rightly, quite biblically, have also made distinctions. Baptism, for example, isn't just done willy-nilly, it's only for believers and their children. Distinctions are made. It's not to be unfriendly or unwelcoming. It reflects a real distinction that the Bible says exists between people. Are they in the believing family or not? Have your sins been forgiven or not? So back to the text then in verse 5 in this first section, Paul talks about relating to outsiders He's got non-believers in mind. In Colossae, as we've seen, the young church was growing and the gospel was bearing fruit. People were becoming Christians despite the threats we've seen from pagan immorality and the outside and the sort of different kind of uh, anti-Christian philosophies that were affecting the church from the inside. Social historians who've looked at this period have have looked at these first Christians who lived in the, the cities of the Roman Empire And they've observed that they were very conscious of being separate, separate from the world. But that didn't mean that they withdrew into a a sort of holy huddle or a a monastic seclusion. No, they, they remained in the cities. They continued to go about their ordinary lives in the streets and in the shops and the public squares and the bathhouses, just like we do 
Maybe not the bathhouses, I don't know. Now, Paul didn't just tolerate this as a kind of inevitable contact with evil that had to be sold. No, he positively encouraged it. In fact, his gospel absolutely demanded it. Because remember chapter 1, all over the world, the gospel was bearing fruit and increasing. And it was only doing that because Christians shared it in their day-to-day lives. What that means is that for the early church, every outsider was looked at as a potential insider. And what does that mean for us here at Chalmers? Who are the outsiders? Of course, the outsiders are those who are literally outside the building, out in the streets of Morningside, or perhaps family back at home, colleagues at work, folks we'll see at school or, or, or university, or whatever it is. But I think in Paul's terminology, it also includes those who might be in here who are not yet believers. And if that's you this evening, let me repeat, you're very, very welcome. In calling you an outsider, the Bible's not trying to be unfriendly to you. It's simply trying to point out the fact that there is a real difference, both now and if things don't change, forever. But it's our longing as believers that that difference would be removed that you'd become an insider. And that's open to anyone and everyone as you hear the voice of Jesus Christ commanding you to repent and believe his gospel. It's not just so that Chammer's church might grow. It's for your salvation and everlasting joy and for the glory of God. Well, to that end, that outsiders would become insiders, saved from hell for heaven to the glory of God. We Christians have been given two important responsibilities towards that end. And they're in the passage here. I want to draw them out for you. Again, you'll find them on the summary. Prayer and proclamation. So first, prayer. And in context, the command to continue steadfastly in prayer in verse 2 isn't restricted to prayer for evangelism alone. I take it that Paul is encouraging all different types of prayer. But given verse 3, prayer for evangelism is certainly included And it's something that we mustn't overlook as a church, especially when there are so many other valid and good prayer needs for us to be thinking about, praying about. So I want us to notice first how these verses tie together in our responsibility to outsiders. The responsibility to pray first very closely to the second responsibility, which is to proclaim. Now, in this case, by proclamation, I'm using a a big word, but I simply mean telling the gospel message about Jesus to outsiders, people who are not Christians. And I want us to notice first that proclamation isn't just Paul's job. It's for all Christians. So in Chalmers, it's not just a job for the elders or for the staff team or a few keenies, a kind of optional extra. We are all of us together, if we're Christians in this room, we are the proclaimers. Although we don't have to wear funny glasses. Did you notice that Paul used the same word, ought, twice in these verses? Both about himself in verse 4, he talks about how he ought to speak, and then about the Colossians as well in verse 6. They ought to answer. The word is strong. It speaks about what you absolutely must do. One commentator has put it memorably like this. Paul is bound more by his obligation to preach the gospel than by his chains. 
And I wonder, do we feel that bind? Can we notice, secondly, that the way we relate to folks is important. The way we speak. Have a look at verses 5 and 6. We have to walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. We have to let our speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that we may know how we ought to answer each person. Now, we won't have all the answers, will we? There are always more mistakes to make as we try and share the gospel. More things we can learn about how we can do it better and more effectively. But we have to be gracious and wise as we try. We have to to take the opportunities as they come. We have to let our conversation be seasoned with salt. Nobody really knows what that means, so commentators have lots of educated guesses. But in pagan literature, at least, if you seasoned your conversation with salt... That meant that you were witty, so you didn't just drone on. You you told some jokes to keep your audience engaged. Paul's changing the use of the idiom. He's not telling Christians to be funny while they're sharing the gospel. The best suggestion I've found for what he means here comes from the New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce, who studied for a while here in Edinburgh, And he suggests that in the context, Paul's talking about the saving grace of common sense. So we can paraphrase Paul. Do share the gospel, but don't be a weirdo while you're doing it. Now, let's notice for a third thing that while prayer and proclamation are clearly here things that we need to do, as we do them, God is at work. God's at work. Let's look at that. These verses, I think, suggest actually what's probably a typical sequence of what happens And I wonder if you recognize this experience from your own, the sequence from your own experience. So first, verse two, we pray, we Christians, we pray. And then verse three, God opens a door for the word. That means he gives us an opportunity to speak. Next, verse three, we proclaim, whether like Paul, he does in verse three, declaring the mystery of Christ, or like the Colossians in verse six, answering objections and questions. Now, Paul doesn't say what happens next, but we know from other places in the New Testament, like Acts chapter 16, that what happens next is God opens a heart so that unbelievers believe in Jesus. It sounds simple, doesn't it? We pray, God opens a door. We proclaim, God opens a heart. Conversion. Well, people are not always saved, for sure. But just as sure as that, is this. If you don't pray and you don't proclaim, no one will be saved. No one will be converted. So this is our responsibility towards outsiders as we press on together towards maturity in Christ, just to keep at it. We have to relate to outsiders with a gospel focus so that by the grace of God, they might become insiders, Christians. And that As Paul finishes this letter, he's saying it's an essential part of growth, not just the gospel's growth as it grows around the world, but our growth together as a church, our individual growth in Christ as well. Second this evening, relating to insiders and the subtitle, Purposeful Gospel Partnership. Now, in this last section of the letter, verses 7 through to 18, Paul mentions at least 10 other people 
by name. And if you want to later, you can look them all up in a Bible dictionary and find out just what it is we know about them. The answer is, in most cases, we know almost nothing at all. Now, there are some more famous names in there, like Luke the doctor, Luke the beloved physician. He's the Luke who wrote Luke's gospel and the Acts of the Apostles. And if you've been coming to this series, if you've not been away on holiday, then Epaphras will be another name that I guess will be familiar to you, this time from earlier on in Colossians. Because remember that as far as we know, Paul himself had never actually been to Colossae. Epaphras was his man who he dispatched to preach the gospel to them. And Epaphras, in some ways, personifies Paul's concerns in this letter as a whole. I like to think of him as Colossians in flesh and blood, because he's a living and breathing example of everything that Paul desires. Look at verse 12. He's always struggling on the Colossians' behalf in his prayers that they might stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. What a guy. Well, rather than go through all these 10 people one by one, uh, instead I want us to think about the bigger picture. What sort of people are these? They're a diverse bunch, but what have they got in common? Why might their names even be included here in the Bible for us and forever at all? After all, the letter to the Ephesians, which is in many ways a sister letter to this letter to the Colossians and may even be what's referred to in the letter as the letter to the church of Laodicea, contains no personal greetings at all, even though it's very similar in content. So why are these folks here? The best answer, I think, to the question, who are these people, is that they're representative of Paul's gospel partners. They're a wide range of people. They're mostly men. There's one woman. Faithful brothers, fellow workers, some Jews, some Gentiles. But they're all people who share Paul's priorities. Some close at hand with him in prison or nearby, some far away. But they all love Jesus. They all love the church. And they all long to see the gospel spread and grow. So this section, last section of the letter, I want to suggest to you is about ministers. And again, I've suggested some Subheadings, ABC on the handout for you. Ministers to greet, a minister to encourage. And then the letter finishes with grace to all ministers. Now, when I talk about ministers here, I'm using the word in the very broadest sense that it's often used in the New Testament. We often talk about Robin as the minister of Chalmers, Roger's assistant minister, Johnny's a minister in training. But that's not how the New Testament usually uses the word. In chapter 1 of this letter, Epaphras and Paul himself are both called ministers. And then in these verses that we've read tonight, in verse 4, Tychicus is called a minister. Archippus, he's not called a minister, but he's got a ministry in verse 17, and it's the same root word. But really that's the point I want to make. Anyone with a ministry is in that sense at least a minister. So please don't think that because you're not Roger, Robin, or Johnny, or on the staff team or an elder, that this last passage has nothing to say to you. It's got lots to say to you. Because a ministry is simply a form of service, and every Christian is called to serve. So we should all be ministering to one another in different ways. So with that in mind, first, ministers to greet. 
Now, the greetings in these verses come from all different directions. Paul greets some he knows in Colossae and Laodicea. He sends greetings to Colossae from others. He tells the Colossians to welcome Tychicus and Onesimus in person. We get, don't we, in these verses, a real sense of Paul's community here. Various different comings and goings. And if Paul were around today, I guess he'd have been in regular conversation with each of these folks from his jail cell on Skype. He'd have been keeping in touch. I don't think you're allowed mobile phones in prison, but uh, if he'd had one, they'd have been in his WhatsApp group. As it is, he uses the only means of communication available to him, his letters and his messengers. And we get a real sense of that here. Not just of how Paul uses these things to build and grow his network, but just how important these friendships of fellow ministers are to Paul. And we can tell this by the way he describes them. So let's have a look. Verses 7 and 9, Tychicus and Onesimus are both described in the same way, beloved and faithful. And Tychicus, we learn, is able to encourage the hearts of the Colossians. And in verses 10 and 11, there are these three Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus, not Jesus Christ, Jesus called Justice, three Jewish men who've been a comfort to Paul. If you were here this morning, we were thinking about comfort. We were talking about the Holy Spirit as the comforter in John's gospel just a moment ago. It's a theme that runs right through the Bible. If these three men were a comfort to Paul, what does that mean? Does it mean they made him a hot chocolate when he was feeling low? No, this is a deep and real and spiritual comfort, the kind of comfort that enables someone to persevere in ministry in the face of the stiffest opposition. And then finally, look at Epaphras in verse 12 again. There he is, struggling, working hard for the benefit of his brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul greets these people, singles them out by name, because they're so important to him, so vital to his gospel work. I think one reason we've got these verses in our Bibles is just to show us that the friendship of people like this is vital for us if we're going to go on to maturity in Christ. Now, in, in saying that, I'm not advocating another version of the Jesus plus kind of heresies that we've seen back in chapter two. You know, Jesus plus Christian friends. It's quite the opposite. Each one of these friends is a servant of Christ Jesus. They're so valuable and precious to Paul precisely because of that. They're always pointing to him and to the hope and the joy and the fullness that we can have in him. And what a blessing it is, isn't it, to have friends like that? I'm sure some of us immediately will be able to think of friends we have like that, friends who really know us and, and pray for us deeply and, and lovingly and care for us spiritually and vitally. Maybe you're sitting next to them. But perhaps you're struggling to think of people like that in your life. I don't know, maybe you're going back to school this week and you're conscious that you are the only Christian in your class. Or perhaps you've just moved to Edinburgh for work or you're going to begin a course of study in September, and you're looking for a church family, maybe visiting us tonight, thinking of settling, but you're aware, whatever your situation is, that you don't yet have friendships like these in this city. Or 
perhaps you've been here for many years. Maybe you're in, in leadership of some sort. But as you reflect on it, you realize that at this stage or this season in your life, there is a lack maybe of the kind of spiritually hardworking and heartwarming friends that Paul enjoys. Well, if any of those are you, that's something, something to pray about. Maybe something to act on as well. Because the Bible encourages us by means of examples of folk like Paul to make relationships like this a real priority in our lives. So you might be the only Christian at school or in your class. But if that's so, it's doubly important to build up your Christian friendships in the Sunday clubs or CCY or youth church or whatever it is. We moved to Chalmers almost exactly a year ago from England and we didn't know anyone here. And in that context, it was a priority for us to join a home group. And that's where we've got to know people who, who pray for us and pray with us and encourage us as we go on to maturity in the Christian life. And hopefully we can do the same for them. And as we've seen tonight, a range of small groups for all kinds of ages and stages will be starting up soon. If you're not involved in one, can I encourage you again? Please resolve to join one this coming year. It might be for others tonight that the challenge is to learn from the examples here and be more and more intentionally a gospel partner, a friend to others in the church congregation. Maybe by befriending a younger person or a young couple or a family. By building with them a relationship that's really centered on Jesus. By praying for them and with them. Sharing the word of God with them. Is it something you'll think about, pray about? Make a godly resolution. Well, second, a minister to encourage. And this is just one verse, verse 17. Say to Archippus, Paul says, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. What's this all about? If we picture the scene in Colossae, perhaps the church is gathered together for their evening service and uh, the elders got up at the front and he's reading from the first epistle of Paul to the Colossians. There wasn't a second one, don't worry. And he gets to chapter four. Say to Archippus, and everyone's eyes turn around to the back row and there's Archippus. Maybe he's not even, maybe he's not even here tonight. And poor Archippus, you know. And not only that, for him, it gets written down in the Bible for all eternity. Archippus, the slacker. Finish the job. Well, that's how I'd read this. Maybe it doesn't look that way to you. I certainly don't think, having studied it, that that's what's going on here. According to church tradition, Archippus was one of the, the elders or the overseers in the church in Colossae. And there's a good chance that he may well have been the equivalent of Robin at Chalmers, a church teacher, someone with overall leadership responsibility in the church. He might have even been the one reading out the letter when the Colossians first heard it. I think what's going on here is Paul is encouraging him, encouraging Archippus, just like he encourages Timothy and Titus elsewhere in the New Testament, to keep going in ministry. And Paul's telling the rest of the congregation, you guys have got to get behind Archippus to make sure that you support him and equip him and encourage him as well. Archippus is told to make sure he fulfills his ministry, literally that he fills it up. It's a significant resonant word in this letter because it's the same word that Paul uses when he's talking about the fullness of Christ. And just as an example, if you don't mind, turn back with me to chapter 1, verse 25. 
Because in that verse, this is just a few pages before, chapter 1, verse 25. Paul's talking about his own ministry. And he describes it as being a ministry to make the word of God fully known. And this is the same word as he uses for Archippus. Literally, his ministry is to fill up the word of God. It's Paul's ministry, and I think it's the same thing he's telling Archippus to do. So what's the application for us tonight? Our elders at Chalmers have been entrusted with a ministry, namely, to make the word of God fully known among us, to fill it up by preaching it, by teaching it, by watching their life and doctrine as they equip the saints, that's us, for our ministries. If you're an elder here tonight, by the way, that's your job, in case you didn't know. See to it then that you fulfill the ministry that you've been given. You've received it in the Lord. And what about the rest of us? Well, we've to encourage the elders to persevere in that ministry, provoking them and stimulating them by our prayers, by our words, by our obedience, by our love, even by our emails sometimes, to fulfill that ministry among us. That doesn't mean that we make their life difficult or more complicated than it need be. It's the opposite. We serve them as they serve us. We make their ministry a joy. And so the whole body grows, nourished by the word of God, with Christ himself as the head. And the application doesn't stop with the elders, I think. We've agreed, I hope, that we're all ministers in different ways, with ways to serve. And the ministries that we do as Christians are to one another, and they're not, for that reason, our own concern. I'm not saying we don't have a private life, but as members of one body, the Bible tells us we're dependent on one another. We share a debt of love to one another. So that means we have a real interest in what each other are doing. We need each other. And like the Colossians had to encourage and spur on Archippus, so we all have responsibility to encourage and spur on one another. Just to say, there is a darker note in these verses with the mention of Demas in verse 14. We don't know much about him, but in Paul's last letter, 2 Timothy, Paul mentions him again. And there he says, 2 Timothy 4.10, if you want to check it later, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Well, Demas seems to have been lost. He's an example of a Christian, even, we can presume, a leader of some significance, he's listed here, who didn't fill up his ministry. He deserted, in love with the world. So you see why we need to encourage one another, perhaps particularly our elders, Following through to maturity and fullness in the Christian life isn't a given, not even for those in leadership. Demas was a gospel partner, but he deserted. So we need to pray. Well, I've also got a ministry to fill up this evening, so I need to get finished. We're into the last point. You don't need to encourage me anymore. Grace to all ministers. And in the last verse of the letter, we see Paul taking the pen from his scribe and asking the Colossians to remember his chains, his imprisonment. For Christ's sake. I wonder how you envisage Paul. We're coming to the end of one of his letters. For all his God-given gifts and strengths of mind and character and conviction and love, Paul was no super apostle. That's his own testimony. The Colossians all depended absolutely upon the grace of God if they were to keep going in the Christian life. 
And so did Paul. No exceptions. Same for us. But the glory of the gospel of Jesus is that there is grace in Jesus Christ that's been given to us. Grace upon grace. He is the Savior in whom we've been reconciled to God. He's the one in whom we've been made alive, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of all our sin. And by faith, we've been united forever to the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. One who's become by his resurrection from the dead a life-giving spirit. He fills us. He's Christ in us, the hope of glory. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. So as a new term or a new season in life begins, how are you going to keep going in the Christian life? God's will for you is to press on to maturity in Christ. But is that even possible for someone as struggling and as sinful as I am or as you are? Well, the message of this letter, Colossians, is that the answer is yes. It is possible because the grace of Jesus Christ revealed in the gospel is sufficient Christ himself is enough. And in him we can fill up all the ministries we're called to do. We can come to stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Not in our own strength, but in the strength of Jesus Christ. Are you not yet a Christian? If not, you're called tonight to come and put your trust in the Lord of all creation. Be an outsider no longer. Come and put your trust in Jesus who died that you might be reconciled to God. Believe in him. Are you a Christian who's, who's struggling? Discouraged perhaps? Well, let the Lord Jesus Christ encourage you tonight by his gospel and by his people. Or are you a joy-filled believer? Well, give thanks to the Lord who's given you that joy. And along with it, he's given you a ministry. See that you fill it up. Grow up in your salvation to maturity. And in Jesus' name, give of yourself and of your gifts for insiders, for outsiders, for his sake, for his glory. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God. Thank you that all your fullness dwells in him. And that by faith and by the Spirit, he dwells in us. Thank you that his grace is sufficient for us, for maturity, for ministry, for all of time and eternity. So in Jesus' name, we pray, keep each one in this coming term close to Christ, our Savior, in whom all your fullness dwells. Amen.